we begin with God's inspired word and read the book of Psalms, chapter 101. I will sing of his mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. And when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that mourn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. We find the New Testament reading in Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28. Your pew Bible is page 1094. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject whatever is harmful. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Our our gospel reading for today uh, will be in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. I'll be reading from the Pew Bible, and the page is 893, starting with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God add his blessings to his word. That's always been a troubling passage as, as far as I was concerned. Order seems a little bit tall. Let's see. Be perfect, therefore, as my Father in heaven is perfect. I don't even begin to know what that means. Are we talking about completion? Are we talking about the fullness of love? Are we talking about the absence of any kind of sin or moral failing? Are we talking about all of the above? Are we talking about perfect in power? Perfection in judgment? Are we talking about the perfection of capacity and capability for which his appears endless? At first glance, it's an order I can't begin to fill. A daunting sort of task, a discouraging sort of word and text. But we need to read on. We need to look at the fullness of all of the passages that have been read this morning and more. You'll need to work on that in some of your spare time. We've been talking about resurrection life. We've been talking about, and of course this is the, resur- this is the rapture group that's missing from this section right over here and a few from in there, as I said last week. I see that you didn't take that to heart. You still are sitting in the unsaved sections of the church. And that makes me really sad because I wonder about the power of preaching. It feels sort of futile to me at this point, just, just so you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, that, that humor aside, we've been talking about resurrection life and power. We've been talking about what that translates to or what that means like in our lives. And I can't escape the fact that at the end of the day, resurrection life has to also look like some kind of transformation. You see, when we're resurrected at the last day, Paul tells us we'll put on spiritual bodies. We'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That there'll be a completion of a transformation that's been ongoing. Right now, we're living in bodies of death. But at some point in the future, at that moment of resurrection, at that moment of translation, if you will, when Jesus comes, something amazing is going to happen. I have no idea what that is, or what that looks like, or feels like, or how that functions. I just want to be there. I just want to experience it. I could relate it after the fact. I don't need to know before. But there's something happening in the here and now, too, in my body. 
We're, I could, I could uh, go into illustrations that may or may not be meaningful or helpful. But our body has memory, not just our brain. Our body remembers old injuries. Our body is sensitive to its weaknesses and diseases. Our body experiences all of the vulnerabilities of flesh. And yet it's remarkable in its capacity to be healed and in its capacity to learn and reform and reshape. Even brain science tells us that refocusing our attentions on different things creates new neurological pathways, that we can actually expand the capacities of a particular part of our brain by exercising it. It's why activity and using our brains is so important as opposed to just those passive things that I and so many other people want to drift to, like being the um, saliva-dripping couch potato with the trigger finger. Zoned out, not learning, brain not engaged, dying. But we're called to so much more. So rather than getting lost in illustrations, I just want to put it bluntly. My assumption of resurrection life means some version of transformation and change. When Christ dies and says, I want you to live life and live it more abundantly. When Christ is resurrected and says, I am the resurrection and life. If you are crucified with me, you've been raised also with me. I expect that somehow that shapes our experience, our view of the world, our attitudes, our behaviors, that somehow we're different and identifiable. My fear is, is that I'm not different enough to be identifiable. As my column on the left side of the inside of your uh, bulletin says, I want to be careful about the topic for a couple of reasons. This is not an old school lecture on perfectionism. There is one who is perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. And when I am perfect before the Father, as I'll get to in a little bit here, it will be the perfection of Jesus Christ covering me that makes me perfect. Not anything I do. I also want to be really clear. There's old-fashioned kind of language around sanctification and the processes thereof. The reality remains. We are called to increasing Christ-likeness. That's a fact of Scripture. That's an inevitable fact of relationship because the Scriptures say quite plainly, by beholding, we become. We're changed. As we behold Christ, as we live out resurrection life, we are ever changing in that life, moving toward Christ-likeness. That's inevitable. But I don't want to put the emphasis on the growth process Because what we did in the old days was start to measure our level of sanctification by our behaviors. A Christian who attended church on Saturday was more sanctified than a Christian who attended church on Sunday. Amen. 
a Christian who had managed to become free of clean and unclean foods was more sanctified than a Christian who had not. And if we could manage vegetarianism, even better. And veganism, well, that's maybe the ultimate, I don't know. Somebody uh, I was uh, talking with recently observed, rather humorously, have you ever noticed how vegan is always the loudest word of anything a vegan describes? Hey, I want you to try my vegan casserole today. Have you ever noticed how that's the, anyway, highest level possible. Now, I'm not saying this to make any of us feel bad or to say that I agree or to say that that's true, but it's an example of the kind of thing that was a part of my childhood anyway, my upbringing. There was sort of these levels that we were to attain to, and they were very clear. A guy who tithed was doing okay, kind of the minimum, really, because that's what the Lord commanded. A person who double tithed, that was sanctification. Do you get the picture? But that isn't, that isn't what I'm referring to today. I'm not, those things are good, but that's not, not what I'm measuring anything by today. I'm simply saying, whether I like it or not, because when I talk about perfection and growth, when I talk about the work God is doing in my life, the clear implication is that I've got areas God has to work on in my life. I'm sorry that's the fact, and yet I know on an intellectual level anyway that that's true for all of us. Why should I be any different? It means there's room for grace and acts of grace taking place in my daily existence. It means there's somewhere God has yet to, to shape and change and pull it. Hallelujah, because if I've arrived, well, uh, that's not necessarily a good thing, is it? I mean, I'm an okay person, but there's always, there's always a place to go. This thing we're talking about, resurrection life, isn't ordinary either. This is something I want us to, it's a baseline, but it's not ordinary. I want us to get that in our heads too. Because when we talk about transformation, when we talk about change, when we talk about that old-fashioned word sanctification or being made holy, becoming Christ-like, becoming more like God, we're not talking about a process we engage in terms of a checklist. We're talking about a relationship we engage in terms of an eternity. It starts now, and it goes forever. It starts changing us now, and ultimately ends in a change that takes place in the twinkling of an eye. As bodies of mortality and death are replaced with bodies, spiritual bodies of eternal existence. That's all I can say about that, because I haven't experienced it, and I don't know what it is. Don't know what it looks like. Don't know what it feels like. In the meantime, I'm stuck putting... My pants on one leg at a time. I haven't mastered that leap into my pants thing yet. Tried a couple times, hurt myself badly, gave up on the process. Our text in Psalm is an interesting one. Kind of negative for a call to worship, and yet I think if you listen between the lines, you hear something incredibly true that gets repeated throughout Scripture. Because 
This idea of becoming, this idea of growth, this idea of living Christ's resurrection life and power has a negative as well as a positive side. It's what we aren't as well as what we are. We define it in Scripture both ways. So take a look at Psalms with me real quick. The psalm was 101. starts out as a psalm of praise. I will sing of your love and justice to you, Lord. I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? Now that third line, I will be careful to lead a blameless life, speaks of an awareness of what it means to live out love and live out justice and what the true essence of praise is. You know how empty praise is without emulation? You know what I mean? That is to say when we speak positively to something, but it means nothing in our daily lives. There's no interest in incorporating it, no interest in copying it. It's not emulated. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. How many things do we look at that are vile that we look at with approval? I hate what faithless people do and will have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I'll have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I won't endure. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. Those those whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land and will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Hard to know at that moment whether David is speaking of his own judgment or God's judgment. But the negative identification is that we remove ourselves from evil and the approval of evil. Part of resurrection life, part of living a life in Christ that's sanctified and blameless means a rejection of that which is evil, that which is destructive, that which is deceitful, that which is wrong. When we go to the gospel... Matthew 5. We hear in Jesus' own words powerful teaching. It gives us a deeper insight into what it means to be perfect in context. If we start at the beginning of the chapter, those sections not read today, we're at the Sermon on the Mount, or Luke, the Sermon on the Plain. We're at this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed 
are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful. The pure in heart. The peacemakers. The persecuted because of righteousness. This is the opposite of what Psalm is saying. This isn't what we separate from or reject or cease to identify with. This is that which we identify with. It's part of an upside-down kingdom that politically we don't relate to, that we have no imagination for. It's a gift given us in Christ. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Now that, my friends, is not intuitive. Do you know what I mean? Are you with me or have I lost you? We're asleep. Okay, shh. It's not what we would normally do. It's not how we would react. It's not how we're wired in our bodies of sin. Matthew calls us forward in Christ's words to be salt flavoring a world, light illuminating a world, reflecting his light. He tells us that our relationship to law is not one of rejection, but one of fulfillment. That if we teach people deviance away from the precepts and principles of law, we do a disservice to the kingdom of heaven and may not enter there. He teaches us that murder and the breaking of law goes way beyond the technicalities thereof. And we're good at technicalities. How much pride we might take in the achievement of not having ever murdered anyone. And how quickly Jesus points out the fallacy of that. Because we've wanted to choke the living you-know-what out of people many times. We have murdered hundreds or dozens or whatever in our hearts and minds. We have hated. And hate is not part of resurrection life. It's not part of kingdom living or love. We've judged people. We've held grudges. These are the things Jesus points to. Similarly, with uh, control of our flesh, we can take pride in our faithfulness to our spouses. But there's always the sin of the eye. Divorce took place for almost no reason in the time of Christ. He says, you know what? When you throw a person away and you move on as if it's nothing, you too commit adultery, even though your divorce is legal. There are pastors who will spend, I just want to spend a minute on this for the sake of the divorce. There are pastors who will spend a lot of time trying to whittle this down to a criteria that's very clean and very minimal. If this has happened, then you have just cause for divorce. If it hasn't happened, then you're illegally divorced and so forth and so on. They don't understand the expansion of Christ's work in this passage itself. 
Divorce comes out of unfaithfulness and an inability to work through that unfaithfulness, period, the end. And there are many forms that that takes. And while justifiable, it's the heart that God is concerned with. He talks about oaths, speaking truthfully, vengeance, and not exacting it, knowing that vengeance belongs to God. And then we get to today's passage. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I don't know why he had to say that. It has not been particularly a joyful point in my life. I think it would have been just much more practical if he would have said, you know, you're doing pretty good if you love your family and your neighbors and you can manage to hate your enemies. That seems a high enough standard to me. Because at some points in time, doesn't it feel like family and friends are the enemy? You've heard the statement, with friends like these, who needs enemies? No standard gets to be raised really high. God's favor shows no prejudice. We have to rise in resurrection life to a standard that moves beyond. We have to love, greet, welcome enemies. It's a step beyond. And then, after all of that teaching, comes the phrase, be perfect. Because your Father in Heaven is perfect. Wow. So I don't have to be like Him in completion. I don't have to be like Him in power. I don't have to be like Him in eternity. I don't have to be like him in ways of mystery. I need to embrace his fatherhood of all, the love he has for all, the life he has for all. I need to assume the role he assumed, the role of service. I need to let my yes be yes and my no be no and not be one constantly searching for loopholes to maintain a false integrity. And when I've pursued these things, I'm perfect, as my Father in Heaven is perfect. It's not an impossible standard after all. Well, let me rephrase. I haven't arrived there yet, so it's close to impossible. Maybe you haven't arrived there yet either, which only adds fuel to that argument. But when I say it's possible, I mean when the life of Christ is lived out in us, when we have beheld him long enough, when we have been changed, when we've learned to love enemies, when we've learned to let our yes be yes and our no be no, when we've accepted the place of meekness, when we've learned that murder and adultery and breaking the commandment goes way beyond the actual deed, it goes to the state of our hearts. We're open to a new work being done in us. 
It's not a work we do ourselves. It's a work Christ does in us. It's a work the Holy Spirit does in you, transforming you in God's presence, in God's resurrection, life, and power, day by day by day. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5. This passage, starting in verse 12, is called Final Instructions. Paul is sharing with yet another church, the church of Thessalonica, how to live. It starts with an admonition to respect and hold in high regard those who live among you and work for you. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everybody. That means community. These are the markers of community. In our community, we know those who are coasting, don't we? I'm going to be encouraging you to get active. The body of Christ doesn't thrive when 10 people work and 90 people sit on their behinds and do nothing. The body of Christ thrives when everybody works and everybody's doing its part. Paul, you can say that amen a little louder. Amen. It's true. And so it is the job of those of us that are engaged to warn those of you who are idle. God calls you to service and to activity and to perseverance in activity and life. We are to encourage the disheartened. We know who's discouraged around us sometimes. Sometimes we don't. We need to be open ears. Instruments of God's encouragement. Some amongst us are simply weak. They struggle. They can't help themselves. We don't judge them. We encourage them. We're to be patient with everyone. Boy, that's impossible, it feels like. Until we remember Christ's patience with us. And our own patience with our own children, at least some of the time, if not most of the time. Children, feel free to dispute this with me after the sermon. Rejoice always. By the way, I was uh, struck by this. We always say, what's the shortest passage in the Bible? Jesus wept. Well, there are more letters in Rejoice Always, I admit that, but it is a two-word passage just like Jesus wept. Pray continually, again, more letters, but the same two-word passage. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, that is just not my forte. Thank you, Jill. That was my wife who laughed, for those of you who are visiting. Because she knows that I do not suffer difficult circumstances gladly most of the time. Every now and then I surprise even me and her as well. But um, that, is, that is something to, to work on. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus I have what kind of life? I guess I'd better start the series all over again. Resurrection life. Whew. Man, that was a close call. 
Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Spirit wants to liven us, do a work among us, set us on fire, so to speak. It's inconvenient, but it means something. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold to what's good. In other words, don't be lazy. Hold on to what's good. Reject what's harmful. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. There's that word. Make you holy through and through. So whose work is it? God's work. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Whose work is that? God's work, the Spirit's work, Christ's work. One who calls you to this is faithful, and he will do it. He who began a work in you will bring it to completion. God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all people with a holy kiss. That's why we get up and move around. So again, um, if you're sitting, maybe time for a stand and a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read before all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I would say the resurrection life of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And also with you. It is a difficult call, especially when we focus on achieving any of this ourselves. Indeed, it becomes impossible. I'm never going to learn to love my enemies on my own. That's going to be a work of God in me. I'm never going to rejoice in all circumstances. Complaining is just too much fun and deeply rooted in my spirit at moments. God will have to do that work in me. And God will do a work in us. He'll bring it to completion. He'll find us sanctified, perfect, holy, because of what he's done out of his resurrection life, because we've chosen to be part of it. And before I let you go, I want you to think about what this translates to as well. I'm not going to do a sermon on this, a whole sermon on this, but tomorrow is... Anybody know what tomorrow is? Sunday. Sunday. What kind of Sunday? I think it's tomorrow. Double check. Yeah, I think tomorrow's the 5th. If I'm not mistaken, maybe I'm mistaken. It might be next week. We've got Pentecost coming. Holy, is it the 11th? It's the 11th. No, it's tomorrow. Oh, good. I thought it was tomorrow. Tomorrow is Pentecost Sunday. The Sunday in which the Christian church celebrates the arrival of the Spirit in power. And the way in which the arrival of the Spirit in power transformed an entire congregation from... 120 in an upper room to 3,000 in Jerusalem and beyond. The way in which power was given people to communicate in ways they weren't used to communicating with a message that made sense at a level that nothing had made sense at that level before. It was a way of transmitting the grace of God in power. Resurrection life assumes, it assumes, 
that not only will sanctification occur, but that it will be visible to the world around us. And that our work as we listen to and and pursue these things is loving our enemies, loving God's people, sharing with God's people, growing God's church. Matthew 28, go into the whole world and tell them what I've done for you. Tell them what I'm doing in your life now. It's contagious. There's no reason we couldn't have a full church. Unless I set the bar so terribly low as to be insulting, there's no reason we couldn't have two services. And unless those of you with imagination quickly reject me for that, there's no reason we couldn't have six services. Or eight. There's no reason we couldn't expand. There's no reason we couldn't plant other churches. There's no reason Santa Clarita has to be like the rest of the United States with one in 300 people claiming some connection to Adventism and many of those no longer active in the church. He wants to do a work amongst us, with us, through us, for us, by us. And that's resurrection life too. Resurrection life isn't a a selfish piece. It's not a power plug we put right in here so that we can fly. It's something that blesses the world. It's something that transforms our communities. It's something that changes us from the inside out. It transforms and moves, shifts, grows. It's the power of God in you. And so, Lord, we ask that as we come to you, you leave us not the same, but filled with resurrection life, made holy by you, because we've not only abided in you, but in seeing you, we've been changed. Send us forth in your name. Amen.